All right, let's return to our seats now. I'm reading from James chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, and we're going to be talking about God's goodness this morning. God is good. Verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, every good Gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Well, this morning we're looking at James 1 again, and the theme of our time together is the goodness of God, but the title is called Sin, the Enemy Within. These two ideas come together like this. We live in a sinful, fallen world that often brings a lot of pain into our lives, a lot of suffering, a lot of difficulty, a lot of trials, a lot of opportunities for those trials to turn into inward temptations as we would directly or indirectly challenge God back and say, why are you allowing these things to happen to me? But in the midst of all of that, God, from his word, declares himself to be good. God is good. God is a God of goodness and is raining down gifts to us constantly, unceasingly, and it's difficult to reconcile the goodness of God with the sinfulness of our world. Is it not? The sinfulness in your life, the effects of sin for your life and your family. It's difficult to see God as good and the world as sinful, that which God allows to be sinful and to reconcile the two at the same time. We know that there are a lot of awful things that go on in the world. And as I sit in the counseling room and have sat pastorally with many people outside of our church and inside of our church, I know that there are all kinds of things that people are dealing with that are effects, that are the effects of sin. One out of four girls in their lifetime will be abused physically. Those are the ones that are accounted for. One out of six boys are abused physically. Again, the ones that we know about. Our world is filled with awful things and evil things. There are marriages that are struggling. There are marriages that are on the brink of divorce. There are those of you, I know, who have been divorced or who have been divorced a couple times. And those memories are scarring. Those memories are difficult to bear. There's guilt, there's anxiety, there's stuff in our lives that hurts. I was talking to a lady, she was out, she's outside of our church, but her husband was killed 20 years ago in Desert Storm. And their marriage at the time was not going very well. They were at some level unreconciled to each other and he died. She said that it took her 19 years to get over that pain. And to get that reconciled in her heart under God being good, under God being in control, and reconciling that God is good with something that was that difficult to go through. 
And God is good. These people that James was writing to needed to hear from God that he was good, that he is good. It was about 11 years after Jesus had risen from the dead that James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote this book around A.D. 45. He's trying to shepherd people of his own kin, people who were Jewish, people who were coming out of a Jewish heritage, who had embraced Jesus as Messiah, who had been separated and severed in many cases from their family, from their inheritance, from their livelihood. And he was trying to counsel them to bear up under difficult circumstances that God was allowing in their lives for their own good. And he was trying to get them not to turn something that is good for them even a difficult pressure in their lives, into a temptation to sin. We looked at last week where the church was called not to blame God for their own sins. Don't blame God when things get ugly in your heart, in other words, towards God when difficult times come. And then now, the second temptation that James is calling on the carpet is coming out of verse 17. And that is for Christians not to doubt the goodness of God or to doubt that God is good when life is so difficult and hard. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been tempted to doubt the goodness of God? Or perhaps you're in this category where you would say, I just never think about God as good on a regular basis, right? Life is busy. Life is going on. All I can focus on is the negative, the difficulty in life, the pain in my life. And you haven't taken time to think and remember that God is good. That there are so many good things going on in your life all the time apart from sin. Have you ever thought about life in these terms? That everything that is not based on sin or connected to sin is good and is from God, everything, every breath we take, every relationship that we have, every time we eat a meal, every time we pillow our heads at night, this is all the goodness of God in your life and in my life. And when we get wound up and focused in a bad direction, we forget about God and that he is good. Well, I want to show you this morning two reasons from Scripture why we should not doubt the goodness of God. Why you should never doubt the goodness of God. Two reasons. Two reasons. And the first reason is simply this in verse 17. God never changes. God never changes. He's unchanging in his character. And he's good. Think about that. He doesn't change, and he's constantly good in your life. Look at verse 16. Let's start there. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Stop there. What James is saying here is that if you fall prey to these temptations to blame God when life is hard or to doubt the goodness of God, you are tampering with deception. You are getting ready to go off path here and go into a bad direction. Deception here is the word for being led astray. And perhaps certain people could find themselves not to be genuinely Christians at all if they're willing to go so far off the path 
that they are blaming God and wrapped up in their own sin and so negative and so without faith that they would be what James calls in verse 15, those who are brought, bringing forth death in their life. They're showing themselves to be dead spiritually if they're led astray. But James wants to pastor this flock and he says, my beloved brothers. In other words, brothers and sisters. This is where James is opening up his heart with affection towards the church. It's the first time he's shown some affection and he's saying, you're my beloved. You're ones that I love. I don't want you you to be deceived. And so in verse 17, he begins to introduce to them that God is good. God never changes. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. The words every are repeated here for emphasis. And they're making the point that God has always been good. He never changes and he's always been that way. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. These trials that are happening, they're even good in your life. And God will generously open your eyes, verse 5 says, for you to be able to see that in wisdom, that God is bringing suffering in your life for good purposes. But you know what? This spans throughout the scripture that God has always been good, all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, when God created everything. You know the story. Six days he created everything, and then it's as if he took a step back and looked at it and pronounced it good. And God saw, verse 31, everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. I think it's so easy for us to think about it, think about our world as something that's so filled with sin You see what's going on in Egypt. You you see wars and uprisings and downfalls and people hurting. And you see things happening throughout the world. You see mass destruction or you see things happening in homes or even in your own home. And it's easy to say, you know what, it might have been good then, but there's nothing left now that's good in our world. When in actuality, God's always been good. And what he created is good. And it's always been good. It's our sin that corrupts and taints things that we're involved with. People and lives and situations and sickness. That's all based on sin. Our own personal sin and the sin at the very beginning where Adam and Eve fell in the garden. There was a tainting. But it still is our Father's world, is it not? It's God's world. And it's good. Everything apart from sin is good. God transcends evil. He's above it. And I think it's important for us to understand that it's okay for us to be discouraged by our sin, but everything else is good. That might sound too simplistic, but that's the way James cuts it here. He's saying it's all good, except for sin. Except for our sin and the sin that we see that affects the world around us. God has always been good. And then secondly, he is always good. Back to James 1. He is always good. It's coming, his goodness is coming down from the Father of lights. This is a title for God. 
that was given in Jewish literature. It's the only time stated this way in the Bible, but in Jewish literature and in their prayer life, they would address God as the Father of lights. That's saying that God is the creator, the sovereign creator of all the luminaries that are splashed across the galaxies. And the sun and the moon and the stars, everything that is giving light or reflecting light is pointing to the God who is the creator of light. And back in Genesis 1, we remember Genesis 1, 14 through 17, that God created day and night, evening and morning, all of the lights. And he is shown as the one who rules over day and night. That's our God. Job 38 asked a question basically to get us as readers to respond and say, you are the father of lights. You are the father of the stars. Psalm 148.3 says, praise him, sun, moon, praise him, all you shining stars. So many people worship the stars, don't they? And the stars have been leading the ships at night and have been telling us weather patterns and ways for us to measure our existence and how things are going and the seasons and the times for centuries, you know, for, from the beginning of time. But people have turned the, the creature into the creator and they're worshiping stars as inanimate objects because they're so awesome to see and think about and the celestial host of stars and the galaxies are uncountable and they're they're fascinating aren't they but people will turn their worship from god who is over the stars to the stars themselves he's the father of lights though and he's the one who is different than the stars you know how god is different from stars he doesn't change that's james's point stars are heavenly hosts that are moving around The galaxies are are moving, even in predictable patterns, but they're changing. Even as the sun will shine on our world, and at one point, when you're standing out in direct sunlight, you're sweating. As soon as the evening comes and the shadows begin to stretch across the field or across the city or across the inlet, what have you, you can get really cold really quickly. That's change. That's a distinction in how things are in your life. God, in other words, is not like that. It says in verse 17, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The word variation would be something like how these stones, as they're piled up, are in varied patterns or various colors or various sizes on each pilaster here. God is not that way. He's not. People have worshipped the the creation. They've worshipped the stars dating even back to the the times of Daniel in Babylon when Daniel was was not looked to to interpret um, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. Remember that in Daniel chapter 5 and and Daniel is um, ultimately called in. But before Daniel comes, the magicians, the magi are called in to interpret the dreams. And they were Zoroastrian astrologers. And the same... Out of that same group came the Magi who would ultimately determine the star that was over Bethlehem to show where Christ was. And they were probably making that connection because of Daniel's influence back in Babylon years and years before that moment. But I'll tell you what, there's nothing in creation that's more powerful 
than the creator. God is the steady in our lives. He's the constant in our lives. Life's difficult. It's hard. There's sin. There's things for us to wrestle through. But I'll tell you what, whether it's a Zoroastrian religion or Scientology, there is nothing that is the indomitable God that can compare with him. He is what theologians call immutable. You know what that means? He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Numbers 23 says it this way, God is not a man that he should lie, neither is he the son of man that he should change. Malachi 3.6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. God is our rock. He is our fortress. He is the, the foundation for which we stand. That's what we want. We want a God who is the anchor for our souls. Now, in saying that, some of you might be tempted to think, are you saying that God is kind of the great big sort of computer in the sky that is impersonally um, detached from his creation? No, not at all. Not at all. That would be called the impassibility of God. In other words, God without passion. And I do not hold to that. God is dynamically, passionately, intimately, in real time involved in your life. Amen? And he has been from Genesis and will be all the way to the end of the story in Revelation. He's dynamically involved. He's a God of emotion. Ephesians 4 says we're not to grieve the Holy Spirit. Right? He has emotion. He has dynamic with us. But people will say, look, you know, God changes his mind, doesn't he? So he does change from time to time in certain ways. Remember Exodus 32 when the children of Israel were wandering through the wilderness early on. They created the golden calf and God said he was going to destroy them to Moses. And Moses begged God to relent and to remember his own faithful promise to Israel. And what happened? It says the Lord repented. Remember the story of Jonah, when Jonah went and declared the warning judgment against the Ninevites? And what happened? You know, Jonah knew what was going to happen. He knew that that if the Ninevites repented, which they did, and they they dressed themselves up in sackcloth and ashes and put that even over their animals, and the Lord relented. He, he, He changed direction. He decided not to destroy them. Well, let me say it this way. God is intimately involved in real time with emotion, with, with what's going on in our lives and always has been. But his plan never changed. His plans never change. You say, how do you reconcile God repenting or changing direction? Well, his plan was for him to change direction all along. That's it. God is dynamically involved and he knew that the children of Israel and had even planned to allow them to sin in that way and create a golden calf and for Moses to seek God's favor upon them. And it was his plan all along for his own glory to not judge them after all. It's the same thing with the Ninevites. It's the same thing with all situations where it appears that God changed his ultimate plan. But you know what? If God could be convinced that there was a better plan from his creation, would God be the best and the creator? No, 
He, would, he wouldn't be God at all. His plans are not our plans. His ways are not our ways. His plans supersede our plans. And yet at the same time, by his grace, he allows us to inter- interact with him and be involved with him relationally. Or if we could convince God to go in a different direction that was lesser than his best plan, would God still be God in that situation? No, he would be creature-like, opening himself up to sin. And that would not be God either. Numbers 23, 17. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change. Malachi 3, 6. I, the Lord, do not change. He's the bedrock for our existence. And at the same time, he involves himself dynamically and passionately in real time in our lives. Ultimately, putting those two things together is very difficult. But I think it's very important for us to understand that God doesn't change because we can always know that his goodness is showering down because he is the stable, he is the constant in our lives. Warren Wiersbe said, he said, God's gifts always are better than Satan's bargains. God's gifts are always better than Satan's bargains. And you know what? Satan's bargains aren't, aren't gifts at all. They're really something that if you follow and do, you'll pay for. He has always been good, and he is always being good. Look at this again. There's no variation or shadow due to change. That, that is under the idea of him always promising to be good. He's always been good, he is always good, and he always will be good. You know what that means? That means that the gospel will never not be good for you in your life. When Hebrews says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that is a promise for you. We sang about it earlier. It's the words, Great is thy faithfulness, the hymn, Great is thy faithfulness, from Thomas Chisholm. And he wrote these words based on this verse. We sang it earlier. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions. They fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. The last verse of that hymn, which we sang, leads right into the gospel. And you can't stay in your minds just thinking about the goodness of God from day to day without going to the gospel. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. You say, how do I put this into my daily life? Well, I want you to turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. This is where it's so important to see the goodness of God in your daily life, in everything you do and everything you experience. Timothy was... Paul's disciple, and he was the one who was going to take over the church at Ephesus, which was a very significant church in the early church. Probably the Apostle John himself attended this church at Ephesus during this time. But there were heresies early on, and verse 1 of chapter 4 says that there were false teachings and heresies, deceitful lying spirits that were invading the church, and they were called teachings of demons. Now, what does that look like? Is that some Wiccan, you know, black magic or white magic that was involved in the church? No, that is 
legalism was going into the church. And Paul was calling legalism demonic. Look at this. Verse 2. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. What were they doing? Verse 3. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be, re- to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. People were coming into the church and they were seared in their consciences and they were saying, look, you, you can be more spiritual if you don't get married. And so they were forbidding marriage as some sort of cult religion within what was called Christianity. And they were also saying, if you don't eat certain foods, then you're more spiritual than other people. But verse 4 is the counter punch to that heresy for everything created by God is what good and nothing is to be rejected if it if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer Paul is saying to Timothy listen you need to understand that yes there is sin involved in our world but don't discount the goodness of God in marriage marriage in general Every man and woman that joins together in marriage, in covenant marriage, is a reflection of Christ and his church. It is an institution to bring a sanctifying influence in our culture and in our society. When our culture and our our authorities and institutions begin to cut away at the fabric of marriage, even outside the church, it's, it's sort of imploding our society around us. And so we we dare not want to forbid marriage when a man and a woman are coming together in commitment. Our whole culture says, why be committed to each other? Why be committed to one man or one woman? But God's word speaks that marriage should be part of our society. And then people were actually saying, abstain from certain foods. But what Paul says is that Food is set apart in our hearts as something that's a good thing from God. Why? Because we're receiving it by faith and realizing that the Father of lights is providing food for us. You might say, look, isn't it kind of overkill to pray before a meal? Well, I'm not a legalistic meal prayer. We, We do pray before our meals from time to time. Sometimes only half of our family hears me pray, or even a third of our family hears me pray for our meal because we have so many kids and they're kind of sprawled around the kitchen. I figure if we can kind of just get everybody in the same room at the same time and I can make a prayer of thanksgiving that we're doing well. But the point is this. Religion is not based on what you eat or what you don't eat. True heart Christianity is based on receiving God's goodness in day-to-day life by faith. And that's what James is talking about. Seeing God as the the one who's raining down goodness. Your, Your heater in your home, your car, your automobile, the clothes on your back, the relationships that you have. These are the goodnesses of God in your life. Matthew 5, 45 through 48 talks about how God gives rain For the just and the unjust, for saved and unsaved. He's growing the crops and the food for the people of this world to eat. And that's called common grace, but it's common goodness to all of us around. Do you think about these things? Isn't it so easy to be so busy that we just forget about God being good? It sure seems like kids get this a lot better than we do. 
You know, they're, they're not so wound up and wrapped up in their sin yet oftentimes. And they see the goodness of a, of a good meal or a good conversation or a sweet time together or a kind gesture. And we get so busy that we're just going, going, going. And then you crash and you start up again and you go, go, go. And people who are on their deathbed or people who are older, they, they've slowed down to, to contemplate and think about God's daily goodness, what really matters. I was teaching earlier this week about the rich man and Lazarus and how the rich man was in hell because he wasn't a believer, but Lazarus, who was a poor man, was in heaven, pictured as next to Abraham in Abraham's bosom, and there was this great chasm between the two. And the only thing that the rich man wanted as he was in eternal torment was one thing. Will you please send Lazarus over so he can dip his finger in some cool water and put a droplet on my tongue? You know what he was crying out for? A tiny taste of God's goodness. It's a, just a drop of water. As he was being punished for sin. Can, can there be just one little drop of water? Now, we are affected by sin all around us, but we're not there. And we should recognize how much we have now. That's the goodness of God. And then, when he was unable to receive that one bit of relief on his tongue, he said, well, well, if I can't be relieved, then can at least you resurrect Lazarus from the dead so he can go warn my five brothers that they won't come and perish like I'm perishing. What mattered to the rich man most was his family and his relationships during that time. That's all that mattered to him. Could, could they be saved from the torment and judgment that I'm undergoing? That's what mattered to him. It was the goodness of God. That's what he wanted. He wanted to point out to himself and to the Lord that What matters most is the goodness of God. Ultimately, that story, which I think is a true, real story with real names that Jesus taught, was to make the point that the law and the prophets were there to be the word of God for those five brothers. And if they don't receive the word of God, then they won't even receive Lazarus, even if he is raised from the dead. Even if something supernatural happens, if their hearts are hardened to the word of God then they won't be saved either. They will also be forever separated from and depriving themselves from the goodness of God. God is good, and we need to recognize it by faith at all points in our life. Well, God never changes. And secondly, the reason that we should never doubt the goodness of God is that God saves people. God saves people. People. Look at verse 18 of James chapter 1. God saves people, and he saved you, and he saved me. It says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Let's stop there. God in heaven at a certain point took counsel with himself and decided deliberately to save you. And say, you know, it's hard for me to fully grasp the goodness of God. You're talking about being thankful for food, being thankful for relationships. You're telling me to be thankful for things that are difficult in my life, trials and pressures in my life, and it's really hard for me to get there. Well, when none of those things work for me, the only thing that really can ultimately always melt my heart is for me to remember my testimony about how God saved me. 
That's what brings me to the end of myself. And it brings me back to the fact that God must be good if he was willing to give grace to me in the way that he did. Psalm 40 is kind of my life chapter and passage where I remember and recount that God saved me. He lifted me out of the miry clay. He set my feet upon a rock and he made my footsteps firm and put a new song in my heart, a song of praise unto my God that many will see and fear. That's my life. It it just brings me back to the goodness of God. Is God good? Well, did he save you? So he's good. He's good. Is life falling apart? Sure, because of sin. Is he good? Did he save you? He did by his own will. Watch this. He brought us forth by the word of truth. That phrase brought us forth. It points out the fact that he, he wanted you by his own will, but then he recreated you. He recreated you. We are a new creation in Christ. Old things pass away and what? Everything becomes new. He enlivened us to see him and to know him. We are new creations. I was thinking of the story of Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus showed up to Jesus in the evening. They dialogued, and in John chapter 3, Jesus is hearing from this man who is kind of wandering and and kind of inquiring as to whether or not Jesus is the Messiah. Nicodemus leads in and he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. So we know you're, you're supernatural, you're kind of a cut above, Now, Nicodemus was admitting something that the other Pharisees wouldn't dare admit. They wouldn't give that kind of credence. And so Nicodemus, through cloak of night, is sort of having this conversation with Jesus. And Jesus cuts right to the chase, sort of not even dialoguing with Nicodemus as to whether or not Jesus is the real thing. He just says, truly, truly, I say to you, you must be born again if you're going to see the kingdom of God. If the Spirit of God doesn't grab hold of your heart, no matter how much dialogue we have about how good I may or may not be, none of that's going to mean anything for you. For you to go to the kingdom of heaven, you have to be born again. Old things have to pass away. Everything has to be new. Well, Nicodemus, he, he kind of says, how can a, a man enter his womb a second time? How can an old person become young again? How can he be born when he is old? Verse 4. Jesus is saying again, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Ultimately, Nicodemus wasn't catching on. And and sort of Jesus is a little bit exasperated with Nicodemus because he knows Nicodemus has read Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31, which talks about this new birth in the Old Testament. He knows that this Pharisee would have been trained and schooled in the Old Testament law, and he wasn't picking up on it. Now, Nicodemus was either sort of having a duh moment where he's just saying, you know, I I don't get it. I don't get how you could be, you know, put back in your mother's womb, how that could happen if you're old. I, I don't fully reconcile that. Or Nicodemus was just being sarcastic with Jesus and saying, look, I'm already good. I'm already repentant. I've already been transformed. We don't know. But Ezekiel chapter 36 is what Jesus is talking about. He's saying that you have to be washed by the word of God in 
repentance. That's what it means to be born of water in verse 5 of chapter 3. Ezekiel 36 talks about how the water would sweep through and transform and cleanse the heart. And it's a word picture of God cleansing the nation of Israel, washing in a flood water out all of the idols and idolatry. That's Ezekiel 36. And then Ezekiel 36 talks about how God will reach into the life of a person and take out their heart of stone and then replace it with what? A heart of flesh, a soft heart. Jeremiah 31 says the same thing and calls it the new covenant. That's what we're living in now. When people are born again, it's that God took your hard heart out and replaced it with one that is now alive and soft. You're born again. Born to new life. You have living faith This is what God did for you. He recreated you. And John 3 talks about how the wind blows where it wishes. And Jesus was saying, look, when the wind of the Holy Spirit affects your heart, Nicodemus, then you'll understand what we're talking about. Do you remember not understanding this before you were saved? Where you might have understood the facts of the gospel, but the living, abiding word of God. First Peter talks about it as the imperishable seed which germinates in our lives and, and transforms us and makes us born again. We're not saved by gold or silver or precious stones, but by the living, abiding word of God. That's what James is saying. You're brought forth by the word of truth. You were brought forth by the twins, the Holy Spirit, and the word of God which was inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? Amen? You heard the word of God and it opened your eyes and your ears up to believe. That's it. John 10 is where, I mean, Romans 10 is where Paul is saying, listen, how will people hear and believe unless there's a preacher sent? The good news of the gospel has to be sent on blessed feet so people can hear. And John 10, uh, Romans 10, 14 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing the word of Christ. Right? That's the gospel. That's how it works. And James here is saying, listen, don't doubt God's goodness because the gospel was recreating you. It recreated you. And that is the premier example of God's goodness. This phrase brought us forth in James 1.18 is a parallel in contrast to James 1 verse 15. At the end of verse 15 it says, Sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's that same idea. You're born into this death. If you let your sin dominate your life and you give over to sin in the world, then you are showing yourself to not have living faith and you will be eternally separated from God in death. That's what James is saying. By contrast, if God saved you, then he brought you forth to be saved. He wanted you, recreated you, and then lastly, you are desired by God. He desires you. It says you're brought forth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. He values you. He values you. First fruits is a very interesting word because it picks up on the ceremonial system in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, when uh, a in an agrarian society, when a farmer would have its crop and the first sign of its crop come in, they were commanded under the law of God, Leviticus 23 and other places, to take that first fruit 
um, of the crop as an offering to the priest. Uh, They may have been tempted to say, oh, I'm going to harvest this first crop and store it away for myself just in case the rest of the crops don't come. But the command in Scripture was to actually bring that crop and bring it before the Lord as an offering to be burned. It's like a tithe offering. It's where you're not storing money away, but you're willing to freely give the first fruits of what God has given to you. It's called the sheaf offering. It's where, it's where the priest would take the sheaf off of that first fruit crop and wave it, the wave offering, before the Lord. And he would do that symbolically to say that the hearts of these farmers are with you, God. Now bless them with the rest of the crop. The reason James brings this up and says that we are the first fruits is to say that we are that special first installment of God's redemption. What James has in mind here is not only how God will redeem the church back then, but how God will ultimately redeem the church of all the ages as the first fruits of his ultimate redemption where he will redeem all of creation. Do you realize that Romans 8 talks about how the creation, everything around us is groaning in sin and longing to be redeemed? It is. That uh, Paul will personify it in Romans 8, saying that it's as if it's quaking and shifting and longing and wanting to ultimately to be made right and perfect. And God ultimately will fulfill that in his recreation of the world after he's burned it up, and he'll recreate it as the new heavens and the new earth. Remember that in Revelation chapters 20 through 22? The new heavens and the new earth. But you, my friends, are the first fruits of that recreation, that redemption. You are the first installment. We are the foreshadowing of what God will do ultimately forever. And you know what that is? That's goodness in your life. When you sing the child song in your heart, God is so good, God is so good, God is so good, he's so good to me. Do you think of it in this context? It's bigger than just him providing a meal or providing your family or getting you through the next day. It is that, but it's also he's transformed you. He's given himself to you. He recreated you. He values you. He wanted you. He knows you. He gave you the gospel, and you'll be forever with him in heaven. That's the goodness of God. And that's what should splash out onto other people's lives. They should see that in our lives and in our hearts as we live for him. In light of his goodness, not doubting him, but affirming that God is good. Let's look at a few uh, points of application. Number one. Believing that God's goodness is constant, recast everything in your life. If you believe God is good, you'll think everything in terms of your life in every way differently. It will recalibrate the way you think about your days. When bad things happen to you or difficult conversations happen in your life or things smart or or ouches in your life, you can remember that in general, God is constantly good in your life. Sin is what wrecks your life, not God. Everything other than sin, though, is goodness in your life. Number two, this is what I'm really guilty of. I should have confessed this just right up front to make everything good. Busyness clouds our ability to see God's goodness. I'm in a busy stage of life right now. 
Some of you are as busy as I am or more busy, and some of you are less busy. But busyness is a real temptation to forget about the goodness of God. And we're, you know, when you're sort of in your middle age time, you're at this prime time to really reflect on how God is being good to you all through your life. And some people never see the goodness of God until the end of their lives. And then they look back and say, God was good to me at every point all along the way. But it's important for us to see the goodness of God even as we're climbing up through our lifetime. A lot of people in the secular world will say that, you know, the real enjoyable time in my life was the climb in my career, not achieving the ultimate goal of my career. Have you ever heard people say that? Well, if you take this into a biblical context, the real joy of the Christian life is seeing the goodness of God in your life even while it's hard and difficult, so that you can reflect back on your life one day and say, God was good, and I knew it was good, and he was good throughout my life. Busy people will miss what they really have. Children and seniors, by the way, are typically more in touch with the goodness of God in my experience. Children get it, don't they? Like, thank you for this quarter, this 25-cent coin. It, it just means everything to me because now I'm going to take that coin and buy for myself a piece of gum. And this piece of gum is, every, right? I mean, it, they're not as, as complicated as we can become in our discontentedness and our, our, our lack of thankfulness. Oftentimes, children understand the goodness of God. Contentment, number three, always flows from God's goodness. If you're not content in life, If you're finding yourself discontent, meditate upon God's goodness. Number four, man changes, God doesn't. The basis for hope is that God will not change. And Hebrews 13, 8 again is worth quoting to ourselves. Christ isn't going to change. He never has changed and he never will change. He is the rock of our salvation. Number five, the gospel is the supreme picture of God's goodness in your life. Are you thankful that God has saved you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for salvation in you. You are a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is no shadow or turning with you. Lord, you change not. Your compassions, they fail not. As you've been, you forever will be. And we thank you, God, that you are the anchor of our souls. And I pray, God, that if anyone here is tempted to doubt your goodness, that they would repent. And they would repent not just ultimately, but on a daily basis so that, God, we could also enter into the height and depth of worship through difficult times, seeing your goodness and your good hand all all along the way. We thank you for this time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. This time I want to invite up Craig Schwartz. Come on up. You can give us a quick word about your ministry, maybe something we're going to look forward to hearing about tonight, and then close off in prayer. Good morning. It's nice to be here. We uh, finally have the whole family up in town. It's uh, it's been a, a few years since we've done that. Um, I think we left Grace six years ago, and and you guys uh, started supporting us faithfully then, and and continue now. And we really appreciate that. We we left uh, with two children, and now we have ten in our family. And so we've uh, had a, a bit of uh, population growth, and and uh, I can relate to the busyness of life right now. But uh, 
Thanks for letting us come today, and uh, we're looking forward to seeing you tonight. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Dear Lord, I just want to thank you for the opportunity to, to hear your word today and, and to reflect upon your goodness. Lord, I ask that you would continue to keep that in, our, in the forefront of our mind. Help us to remember your salvation, what you've done for us as we interact with others and, and go about our daily lives. In your name I pray. Amen.